Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilbur. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. TASS reports Kyiv's attack on Zaporozhye nuclear power plant puts security of entire Europe at risk. The shelling of the plant by government forces creates a radioactive threat for Ukraine and entire Europe, according to the Russian embassy. For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control in the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector, implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, he was a chief weapons inspector with the UN in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me. So your thoughts on this story, knowing that, of course, this is not the first time that we've heard stories like this erroneously blaming Russia for attacks that were actually the work of Ukrainian forces themselves, and how perilous of a situation is this? Well, first of all, um, you know, this is a he said, she said in the minds of propagandists only um, Everybody knows who perpetrated this attack. It's no secret. Uh, all of the forensic data points to Ukraine. It's literally that simple. Um, so it, it just makes it a, a grossly irresponsible action on the part of Ukraine. Um, how dangerous is it? Um, you know, most modern nuclear reactors, uh, especially those constructed um, in the post-Chernobyl time frame, uh, were, were constructed with shielding sufficient to uh, protect the reactor from, uh, you know, airplanes crashing into it, things of that nature. Um, So I would imagine that, uh, and I'd have to double check this, so please don't uh, go to the bank on this, but I would imagine that the actual reactor vessel is shielded by enough reinforced concrete um, to withstand a direct hit from a 122-millimeter rocket or a 152-millimeter artillery shell. Um, the I think the, the bigger danger is if this stuff hits um, the uh, fuel storage rods, uh, the potential for contamination to be spread that way, um, sort of the equivalent of a very crude, uh, dirty bomb. Um, and, and then the, the destruction of the... Because um, remember, Chernobyl, the, the action in Chernobyl didn't take place because something violated the uh, protection of the, of the reactor core. It was a breakdown in the uh, control systems. Um, and that's, that's where the real danger comes in. You, uh, you eliminate uh, power, and there, there was already, uh, according to the Russians, a power surge created by uh, these attacks, which forced the operators to reduce the, uh, the output of the uh, of at least two of the reactors uh, that are in use at this facility, um, and then you could you know destroy the the control rooms themselves, or at least the the the, the generators that provide power to the control rooms. Um, which means that if you do this and the system starts to go unbalanced, 
the control rooms wouldn't be able to shut it down or, or do the appropriate measures, then you could get a repeat of Chernobyl. Um, you know, it would take it, w- it would take a lot to make this happen. I don't want people to sit here and start losing their sleep. Um, but the fact is, there's the potential that this could happen. I mean, you know, only a madman would fire artillery shells at a nuclear power plant. Only a madman would. And we now know that Zelensky is a madman because clearly these are uh, strategic decisions made by the highest levels in in Ukraine. Why would they do this? I think they're trying to um, inject um, uh, or create a situation that, uh, as Ukraine has already said, they've given away their hand. We want peacekeepers to come in and take over this power plant. Ukraine is afraid that Russia is going to delink this power plant from the Ukrainian power grid and instead uh, transfer this power into Russian-controlled territory. Uh, and so Ukraine wants peacekeepers to come in, establish a security zone around this area that would then allow Ukraine to make the case that it is the sovereign, it is responsible, it is security. This is a big game being played by Ukraine. Um, it's a very dangerous game, and I think the world's waking up to just how stupid uh, the Ukrainians are. I know that's not a very diplomatic term, but <laughs> literally um, there's, there's no other way to describe what, what, what's going on here than sheer stupidity. Let me ask you this, Scott. This may not quite be aligned with this, but maybe so. You know, I used to teach at a community college, and my favorite subject was organized crime. And in organized crime, we found that the man who was in the greatest peril was the one with the most knowledge. The worst thing you can be in an organized crime organization is the person who knows too much. And right now, with this thing crumbling and this project falling apart, Vladimir Zelensky is that guy. Uh, You know, there are a lot of people speculating that he could be facing, you know, I don't want to say it on the air, but I think you know the direction I'm going. Elimination. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, I'll say it. I I think he's facing what I call the 75 cent solution, um, which is the price of a nine millimeter bullet placed strategically in the back of his head. Um, This will be done by the Ukrainian military. Uh, There's already evidence that the Ukrainian military at the highest levels is very frustrated with uh, Zelensky as a leader. Uh, Zelensky has made a number of political decisions that have placed shaping the narrative, uh, creating appearances above um, you know, battlefield reality. And the price that's being paid is A, tens of thousands of dead Ukrainians, uh, B, billions of dollars of squandered military aid coming in from the West, and C, the dissipation of any potential of a localized strategic advantage that Ukraine could have accrued to carry out um, you know, a, a, a counterattack against, uh, you know, against the Russians in certain areas up in, in Kharkiv or down by uh, Kherson. Uh, there were a number of options for the Ukrainians. Um, instead, Zelensky and his inner circle are playing games. I mean, who in God's name telegraphs the intent to carry out a counterattack? Who would do that? Only an idiot. Uh, And Zelensky is clearly an idiot. He's a man playing to a Western audience saying, look, we are a serious force. We can we are a force to be reckoned with. We can carry out counterattacks. If only you gave us more weapons. He just made another pathetic speech on TV saying just that we can do this. If only you would give us more weapons. How much more does he need? I mean, you know, 
Biden is, of course, signing off on billions of dollars more of direct military aid. It will all, I mean, we know 70% of it will, will be dissipated before it gets to the battlefield. 70%. And then the 30% that's on the battlefield will rapidly be destroyed in, in, in rapid order. Um, and and why, why would Zelensky do this? Because we now have good reason to believe that uh, some documents were released, leaked, stolen, hacked, whatever you want to say, from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense that show that the casualties taken to date by the Ukrainian army alone is 191,000 casualties. Uh, when you add in border forces, the air forces, and other, you're looking at a quarter of a million. Of course, this is a number I've been citing because anybody who's capable of doing quick military math type calculations based upon force dispositions would say that's exactly the number we should be at. And apparently the Ukrainians agree with me because that's the published number. They've also said that their military forces have been depleted to in the you know 35 to 45 percent combat effectiveness. You can't win a war. You can't go on the offensive with units that have been so depleted. And they've also said that we don't have any more officers. They're all dead. So they can't rebuild this military. Um, and I've been saying on this program and elsewhere that we have reached a culminating point. We have reached a culminating point. The battle has turned, and I think you're going to see rapid Russian victories from here on out. And I don't think you're going to see anything that resembles a coherent, cohesive Ukrainian counterattack. Sure, they might assemble forces and send them marching in a direction. They will all die in short order because the Russians dominate the battlefield. So this attack on the nuclear power plant is proof positive that the Ukrainians are in a desperate desperate situation. And by creating an emergency that they would pray could result in peacekeepers being dispatched to a region that has been occupied by Russia since March, that is talking about a referendum to liberate itself from Ukrainian control, the hope is by putting peacekeepers in that Ukraine could somehow forestall this inevitability. It ain't ever going to happen. Russia said, we'll let inspectors come in from the IAEA but the idea that peacekeepers are going to come in, the only peacekeeper in Ukraine is a Russian soldier. So with this recent CBS News report suggesting that only around 30 percent of the weapons sent by the West actually make it to the front lines, and that number might be a generous number, does that report being released and being released now, does that send a signal to you? in terms of the United States narrative and that possibly things are starting to shift here? It sends me a signal that there are elements within the, um, the Biden administration, within the uh, American Defense and National Security Establishment, who, uh, who see the writing on the wall and recognize that, this, um, that, that there, there needs to be a political decision made prior to absolute military catastrophe if the United States and NATO have any hope of of resolving the situation with a modicum of, um, of of pride left. I mean, without losing total face. Um, but then this was matched. I mean, today now we have the absurdity of uh, the defense. You know, a Defense Department source, unnamed, of course, as they all are, um, coming out and saying that the uh, total number of Russian casualties is, you know, I, I forget the number, forty, fifty thousand. That might a million, be, I think. A million, yeah, a million. A but they've they 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 put out a number that is is totally unrealistic without any supporting data. Um, and again, then they back it up by saying, look how much losses the Russians have suffered. And, oh, the Ukrainians have great morale. So, you know, the leak from the defense, uh, Ukrainian defense ministry and the uh, CBS news story, I believe, represents reality. Um, 
the, the nonsense that's coming out of the Pentagon right now is an attempt to spin the narrative in a way that backs up. Because remember, Joe Biden just signed over another multi-billion dollar arms shipment that will be squandered, will not achieve any of the policy objectives, and result in tens of thousands of dead Ukrainians. At a time when the United States has tremendous economic problems, man, Drive through the streets of L.A., drive through the streets of San Francisco, drive through the streets of Baltimore, Washington, D.C., anywhere, and you will see homeless camps. Homeless camps. We're sending billions to Ukraine while the American people are desperate for some sort of economic assistance from the U.S. government to provide the basics of a social safety net. We're willing to sell our population down the river to support a neo-Nazi regime with no chance of success. I mean, this is this is literally, again, insanity, and yet he's getting away with it. But, Scott, wait a minute. They just passed a $430 billion bill to fight climate change. Lower, anyway, go ahead, Garland. <laughs> well, and uh, can you imagine being a Ukrainian soldier in the trenches with artillery landing all around you, and you get a text, hey, good news, we're winning the information war. <laughs> I, I don't think that's celebratory. Hey, the Amnesty International report... You know, they stated the obvious. The Ukrainians are endangering civilians real quick. We got about a minute and a half. Your thoughts on that? I mean, newsflash, Washington Post beat Amnesty International to the punch by several months. The Washington Post published the same story back in April saying these guys are war criminals. They're 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 putting their troops in amongst the civilians. Amnesty International is simply catching up. Look, Amnesty International has a history of going against Russia on all fronts. They've been calling the Russians war criminals, et cetera. For them to publish this report is proof positive that the narrative has flipped. It's over for Zelensky. He's a war criminal. Um, If he doesn't get killed in Ukraine, he'll be ushered out to spend the rest of his life in uh, luxury in Miami or wherever else he has squandered his stolen wealth. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Okay, thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilbur. Pelosi visit puts Japan in Taiwan firing line. Japan offers polite reception but is ill-prepared for Taiwan tensions as Chinese missiles splash in local waters. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an author and professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, Ken, welcome back. Good to be here, Wilmer. So the description of this visit is interesting to me. The Asia Times reports, unlike South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol, who declined to meet Pelosi when she flew into South Korea immediately after visiting Taiwan, Kishida, the prime minister of Japan, deployed customary diplomatic niceties and typical Japanese politeness toward the visiting U.S. House Speaker. Am I reading more into that description than I should be, or was this a way of saying basically Japan held its nose while Nancy was in town? 
It's a, it, that that passage is is very loaded. I thought when I when I looked at that, I thought, well, this is uh, certainly a, a a very carefully crafted formula here. Uh, you know, I think that that the Japanese are probably <laughs> very very conscious of the changing dynamics in that part of the world. Uh, the article itself, I think, a little further down, notes that uh, Japan's export twenty six percent of it is with China. Uh, less than eighteen uh, percent of it is with the United States anymore. These are the underlying realities of a of a changing global economy that uh, that countries like Japan just can't totally ignore. You know, Japan has uh, of course been a uh, a loyal minion of the United States in the Western Pacific since the end of uh, of World War II, since the end of the occupation in. 50. But uh, I think that uh, though the realities that have changed around it uh, mean that they tread a lot more carefully now. They have to be cognizant of what their real interests are, what the dynamics of the future are. So yes, I think it was a you know they're not gonna they're not gonna turn their backs on the U.S. I thought it was quite remarkable that that she didn't get that uh, you know a, a, a high level action in South Korea. That was interesting in its own right. But I think the Japanese uh, you know. Went through the appropriate motions and uh, and did what they did, sort of the minimum of what they had to do, uh, or what they felt obligated to do. You know, I think this is an interesting incident in that you know people expected the Chinese to hit back militarily, and they kind of sat back, you know, kind of the wise old sage that sits back and watches nature run its course, right? And what we see with the reaction of Japan, with the reaction of South Korea, we see that countries in the region seeing the potentially disastrous results of this neocon adventurism are in their own starting to kind of recoil in horror and have second thoughts, you know, and they're like, whoa, this thing almost went bad. It almost went nuclear in our backyard. And so by not acting, China got out of the way and let a dynamic create the backlash of its own. And it's very interesting to watch. Your thought on that, Ken? No, I think I think that uh, <laughs> that that's been very much the case. China, you know, there was a lot of speculation. Uh, much of it, I think, in the West, rather eager that China might be provoked into a a rash response, that China might do something which would allow the Americans to then point the finger and say, oh, look how they're destabilizing things. Look what a threat they are. Look what a menace they are. Uh, and instead, you know, China has uh, has taken a very measured response. Uh, they have conducted these military exercises to demonstrate their capabilities uh, but uh, you know, that's that's certainly well within their uh, their 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 rights, their 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 you know their area of operation. Uh, they're not doing anything that goes beyond what is recognized to be Chinese territory. Uh, and so I think you know they've been they've been pretty pretty self conscious, pretty moderate in their uh, in their response. And and that means that uh, that the U.S. is kind of left holding the bag on this. Because uh, a lot of people around the world have recognized that Pelosi's actions were just gratuitously provocative, part of this ongoing effort by American political uh, leaders and elites to, to demonize China and try to provoke China. And it's not working. You know, it's uh, I mean, it's falling on deaf ears in much of the world and it's not working with China. China is not going to be drawn out into some rash action. These been around a long time and they're very savvy about coping with the world and they don't you know they don't need to overreact they don't need to be provoked into this they're on a rising tide and uh and i think they can they can they can move forward with 
with a great deal of uh, of confidence and uh, and uh, and reserve. I'd like for you just to elaborate a little bit, Dr. Hammond, on that point, because this article in Asia Times talks about China took the single largest share of Japan's exports, 21.6%, with Hong Kong taking another 4.7%. By contrast, the United States took 17.9%. And the article says Tokyo has little choice but to tread lightly around Beijing, which is why Tokyo's posture on Taiwan is so ambiguous. This seems to be consistent with China's response across the board. Their focus is trade. Their focus is business. Their focus is not militaristic. And so, so long as Japan seems to signal to China, we're going to keep doing business, then in China's mind, it's all about the long term. Everything's basically fine. Sure, I think that that China is very focused on uh, on issues of its economic development. They've been, you know, working for many many years to develop their productive economy, to to you know raise the material standard of living of people, lift people out of poverty, provide better housing, health care, educational opportunities, all these things. That's their focus. Their focus is on improving the lives and the livelihood of, of the Chinese people. Uh, and that includes, uh, you know, of course, the people on Taiwan. They want to see those people flourish and prosper, too. And it includes doing what they can uh, to provide assistance to other people in other parts of the world in their efforts to, to develop and, and improve their own livelihoods. But their focus, yes, is very much on, on uh, you know, the pursuit of a, of a better future, a more prosperous future for the Chinese people. They're not, you know, this idea, the United States constantly, constantly harps on this idea that China is destabilizing the world and China's being aggressive and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, all, all that really amounts to is, on the one hand, the, the projection by American elites onto others of the behavior that they've engaged in, indulged in for many, many years. And on the other hand, you know, that that is a result of the anxiety, the fear that they have, that they're going to they're going to lose out. Uh, They're going to see the the diminution of the power and the privileges they've had uh, for many decades. You know, so they're reacting in a defensive way. They're reacting in a way that's that's not really very productive or very useful. Uh, and they're trying to to bully the world, uh, you know, and 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 hang on to to what they've had, even as the world goes about its business and 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 is you know being transformed and and going through these deep sort of structural changes in its own in its own on its own course, you know. So it's it's kind of a fool's errand by the American politicians, but they seem hell bent on on trying to to stop the course of history in ways that, of course, are are just not going to be going to be effective and are really very counterproductive uh, for the good, not only of of China, but of of the American people as well. Ken, the U.S. has passed the CHIPS Act, and it's a $250 billion, quarter of a trillion dollar bill, supposedly, ostensibly, it's to help the U.S. catch up with China for semiconductors. They just passed that $280 billion. But let me read you something from one year ago. Senate passes $250 billion bipartisan tech and manufacturing bill aimed at countering China. So last year, this time, last year in the middle of the summer, they passed $250 billion to counter China. Apparently that didn't work. This year, $280 billion to counter China, half a trillion dollars over the course of about, oh, 13, 14 months. One could almost think that it was a money laundering scheme and suspect nefarious intent. (laughs) Uh, Your thoughts? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, well, it is, of course, uh, the, uh, a long and, and uh, well-honored tradition in, in American politics to shovel money to, to corporations without necessarily getting a lot of, of return on those investments. You know, the, uh, the, the, it, it, I don't know if money laundering is exactly the right term. It's, it's almost sort of a, sort of a, a philanthropy for the rich, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I think that these efforts... Uh, that are being made to to try to to jumpstart or 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 you know fund in some way uh, this this process of decoupling this this stuff with the chips is part of this overall uh, effort that's talked about of decoupling so that you know the United States is not dependent on uh, a source for these critical chips which you know are used in all kinds of things the 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 cell phone that i'm talking on now military technology all kinds of applications for these things and the fact is that over 90 percent of them are made in uh, in taiwan you know tsmk is the the biggest manufacturer of these in the world the chinese are of course developing their own domestic uh, uh, productive capabilities they've had some very important technological breakthroughs recently uh, in terms of of you know the tininess of uh, of the processors that they're making and uh, and you know the united states again sees that uh as a uh, as a threat and so rather than try to find a way to work collaboratively and cooperatively with china with taiwan as part of china and develop a global basis a global standard that would serve people all around the world on a common level, you know, it's let's put another quarter of a billion dollars or quarter of a trillion dollars into, uh, you know, bolstering uh, these corporations, which have have not demonstrated a a particular uh, track record of success uh, in developing their own uh, their own chip technologies. So, you know, why not take advantage of what is obviously the, the most sophisticated productive capacities in the world already? And find a way, as I say, to, to, to pursue this in a more win-win strategy rather than, you know, we want to win and we want you to lose, which, you know, it's just, it's just never a very good way to conduct business. In fact, one would have thought or hoped that on the whole 5G development fiasco that the United States would have learned a lesson. As years ago, China reached out to the United States hoping there'd be some cooperative effort on developing that technology in the United States, begged off of it, and now we see where that has gone. To your point about China and technology, China, this is from Asia Times, China unveils game-changing electronic warfare drones. China's FH-95 drone is designed to disrupt high-tech enemy networks and adds a new dimension to its drone warfare capabilities. And you put this along the side of hypersonic missile technology as well as China launching its own space station. Man, there's a whole lot going on technologically in China. Sure, the Chinese have invested massively in uh, in scientific education. Uh, you know, their their uh, per capita expenditures have been accelerating at a rate far in excess of those in the U.S. In the U.S., of course, most of our educational expenditures are declining. Uh, but China has made technological development, scientific research, and not just you know the the hard applied uh, military technologies, but but research across the board in all kinds of fields, uh, it's, they've made that a, a super priority. They're still 
developing that. You know, it isn't that uh, that they can claim to be the global leaders in all fields now, but these are these are priorities uh, for China because they recognize that that building a prosperous future for their people uh, is you know it's going to involve more efficient uses of energy, have more productive technologies. Uh, you know, the the, the long term goal uh, in their efforts to to move towards socialism and eventually communism, you know, is to create a society in which labor becomes less onerous. It's something that people aren't burdened down with. And if technology can enhance that so that when we talk about labor-saving devices, in capitalism, the, the savings on labor go to the capitalists. In socialism, the savings on labor are shared by those who perform the labor. You know? So mm-hmm. that's a whole different uh, that's a whole different horizon. So I think that yeah, these 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 technologies, whether they're military or or chips or or whatever, uh, this is a super priority for China. Uh, in part, of course, there's also a defensive element to that because they understand that the United States will apply all of its technological capabilities to uh, to demonizing China mm-hmm. and pursuing China and trying to slow China down. So they, you know, they're 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 doing what makes sense for them, uh, and in many ways, what makes sense for for most of the rest of the world as well. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Always glad to be here. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. TASS reports Kiev's attack on Zaporozhye nuclear power plant puts security of entire Europe at risk. The shelling of the plant by the Kiev government forces create a radioactive threat for Ukraine and the entire Europe. The Russian embassy in Washington said this yesterday. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Sloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. So how is this story being reported there? And we know that this is not the first time that Ukraine has tried to use this facility in the fear of a nuclear catastrophe to fit its narrative. Yeah. um, Okay. so this isn't the first time uh, that the Kiev regime has used the shelling of a nuclear power plant in Ukraine to try to uh, increase the level of geopolitical attention that they feel is due them. Um, They have previously falsely accused Russia of bombing the Chernobyl plant, and we have now seen multiple instances here. Um, In this particular case, they are bombing the plant and still trying to blame Russian forces for, um, you know, the potential uh, nuclear um, accident uh, calamity that could result. This is one of the largest, second largest uh, nuclear power plant in all of Europe. Meanwhile, the International Atomic Energy Agency has been screaming basically that, you know, every 
amount of rules and safety with regards to um, you know keeping control of a nuclear plant is being violated by uh, you know this entire process uh, and they have called for uh, you know both sides uh, to you know well certainly limit the military damage and also to allow the workers uh, at the plant to um, you know, do what they need to do to keep the nuclear power plant safe and running. It has to be said that Russia has kept Ukrainian employees on at these nuclear plants in every location uh, that they have taken from the Kiev regime so far. So they are you know, facilitating the work of the people who were already there because as far as they're concerned, their beef isn't with them. It's not with the Ukrainian people. It's with the regime that seized power in Kiev in 2004. Turkish President Erdogan, an interesting, I use that word guardedly, an interesting character. Boy, he knows how to piss everybody off, but it often seems as though, first and foremost, he's playing the hand for Turkey to get as much as they can. You got to give him credit for that, at least, even if he does anger people. But here's the bottom line. What's up with, let me just say this, it almost seems to me like he's like, well, I think I know who's going to win here, and I'm going to jump on the side of the victor early when in so many levels. What's up with the Putin Erdogan? summit and uh, you know is there any meat to that yeah okay so um, uh, first of all um i i think you're right i you know erdogan is always being erdogan and he is always trying to play other countries off of each other for what he sees uh as turkey's best national interest and he has leveraged turkey's key geopolitical pivot point both geographically with its location between europe and the middle east uh and the mediterranean the control uh of access to the black sea um you know but um also uh his position as um, Turkey being a NATO member uh, and being an uh, associate of the European Union, uh, but still maintaining a lot of relations um, with uh, you know the the countries of Eurasia and and evidencing in interest in the Belt and Road um, and BRICS uh, and the Shanghai cooperation at at various levels of involvement as well. Uh, so and he has long played the U.S. and Russia off of each other in Syria and elsewhere. This summit was actually a big summit, but in terms of trade. This trade, I mean, they discussed Syria, they discussed Armenia, Azerbaijan, they discussed events in Ukraine. But primarily, this was about bilateral Russian-Turkish trade. And Russia provides an enormous percentage of Turkey's energy. But then the uh, Turkstream also allows uh, uh, gas uh, the pipeline uh, through Turkey, Russian gas, to be delivered to Europe. And in fact, during the summit, Putin said that um, Europe ought to thank Erdogan because at least one of the pipelines um, uh, sending energy uh, to uh, Europe 
is without any problems. And he contribute he attributes that, uh, you know, playing a little bit of flattery to Erdogan, vice uh, the Kiev regime, which has shut down some of the uh, access pipes, uh, limiting the flow of Europe uh, through their country and um, Germany's uh, problems uh, with its own sanctions affecting, uh, according to Gazprom, the uh, turbine pumps uh, repeatedly for Nord Stream 1. And I think also a, a little bit of a dig at Nord Stream 2, which is finished, but for political reasons, Europe won't bring it online. Um, Turkey and Russia also, by the way, agreed to start uh, trading that um, Erdogan, Turkey will start paying Russia, at least in part, and then increasingly more over time in rubles for gas uh, instead of the dollars. Once again, uh, a part of uh, Russia's uh, movement away. Russia's also building a nuclear power plant for Turkey. Um, and there is lots of bilateral trade deals that are only being accelerated. And, and and Putin and Erdogan signed a lot of uh, such, uh, you know, mutually beneficial economic deals. And the West was furious at this while they're trying to convince the rest of the world not to trade with Russia at all in line with their sanctions. Here is a NATO member, Turkey. Um, you know, doing not, not just doing photo ops with him, which the West has punished, uh, you know, has threatened other countries not even to do photo ops with Putin, uh, but also signing new trade deals. We know that countries that trade have a tendency not to fight. What does this, if anything, do to strengthen the or help the position of Syria? Can Syria be a third-party beneficiary of warmer relations between Turkey and Russia? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, okay. I, I, I think that Turkey and Russia and uh, also Iran and Turkey have been a clear example where countries that do trade together uh, can also be at war with each other. And that is exactly <laughs> the case. Uh, between Turkey and Russia, not just in Syria. And we have to remember that, um, you know, uh, uh, Turkey shot down a Russian fighter plane on the Turkish Syria's border uh, with NATO equipment. Um, and I mean, with their arming of Al Qaeda and their allies in Idlib, it is pretty fair to say that every Russian soldier have, that has died in Syria, uh, their blood is on Erdogan's hands. And I, I don't think that okay. there's really much argument against that. But that is part of what the whole Astana process has been about, is that unlike the West, which when it has problems with a country, jumps to sanctions first and the ending of trade, part of the whole Astana process was uh, Russia and Iran while at war with Turkey, or at least in proxy war, sometimes in direct war in Syria, they agreed that they would continue economic relations and they would manage the difference between their economic and their geopolitical and military relations that way. And because it would be too much to the negative to each other's sides to, to do so. And amazingly enough, it has mostly worked thus far and at least settled Syria into a mostly frozen conflict with Turkey occupying great swaths of the north of the country, uh, th them and their jihadist proxies.
You know, Mark, isn't it amazing that countries who have disagreements when they actually do diplomacy yeah. can iron at least some things out, no matter how angry they are when they actually do the the D word, which, you know, in foggy bottom uh, is unacceptable. Let me throw this at you. A new CBS documentary, Arming Ukraine, they discuss why only about 30 percent of the military hardware that's sent to Ukraine, and I think that's high, actually makes it to the front. And meanwhile, there's some people in Congress talking about this scam, not just the information in these reports. But I believe, Mark, that the fact that they're coming out, they're being allowed in the mainstream shows that, you know, I think certain people are getting tired and looking for an off-ramp. Yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting. This CBS report is causing a huge political firestorm in the U.S. And who they're actually quoting here is the founder of a Lithuanian-based organization, Jonas Oman, um, who has been providing the regime in Kiev with weapons since they first seized power in 2014, all the way uh, back to there. And they are actually quoting him because he has been instrumental in this process of getting weapons into Ukraine from the very beginning. Uh, from the West. So if anyone knows it, he does. Um, and and he is quoted um, that um, the 30 percent of it reaches uh, only 30 percent of what the U.S. and the West is providing. And that's something like well over 60 to 70 billion. And that's just the arm side, of course. Then there are tens of billions of economic aid that aren't addressed here. But if the, the military in Kiev is that corrupt. You have to wonder how much of the financial aid, the economic aid that is supposedly helping the Ukrainian people is also getting through. And the article also quoted a U.S. intelligence source um, in April, also, of course, speaking with anonymity, saying that arm shipments uh, are dropping into a big black hole as soon as they enter the Ukraine. Now, this is contradicting a Washington Post report just about three weeks ago that said this, that the CIA and Western commandos are on the ground in Ukraine, making sure that the weapons get into the hands uh, of, of, of the people in the Ukrainian, uh, the Kiev regime military forces where they're needed and helping them, I guess, decide where they are needed as they're essentially planning their battles out for them. Um, and so somebody's lying here. Um, and I have a feeling if the CIA is in Ukraine and they're not helping weapons get into the hands, which seems fair from, you know, this European uh, person, uh, this um, Lithuanian organization that has been providing weapons all along, then what are they actually doing there? Uh, and the thing is, we, we don't know. We don't know what the CIA is doing there. We don't know what these weapons there. We do know that some of them have ended up in the black market already sold on the dark net and the jihad in Syria elsewhere are buying them up. Uh, but it's rather interesting that Western politicians like Rand Paul, when they dared say that there should be some accountability, were painted as Putin's puppets. And now it's, it, you know, it's pretty much indisputable uh, from uh, you know, the, uh, people actually on the ground who have been involved in this from the very beginning. Uh, and it shows to the level of how much the information war, the need to maintain a constant level of pro-Kiev regime propaganda is adversely affecting foreign policy, the American taxpayer, uh, and of course the, 
the course of the conflict itself. And what's more, CBS actually deleted their post on Twitter after it ignited a firestorm, their post about this article um, uh, saying that only 30 percent of the military aid reaches uh, its final destination. And they had to apologize because of the 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 opprobrium, the the uh, lynch mob of <laughs> social media and journalists that descended on them for daring to say something like this. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Senate barely approves scaled-back legislation on climate, taxes, and health care. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's a pediatrician and co-editor of Popular Resistance, Dr. Margaret Flowers. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be with you, Garland and Wilmer. So after a marathon session, the Senate yesterday barely passed a $430 billion bill intended to fight climate change, lower drug prices, and raise some corporate taxes. It was a 51-50 party line vote. It took Vice President Harris to cast the tie break. They're saying it's going to bring down inflation. They're saying it's the largest climate bill ever passed. Your thoughts, Dr. Margaret Flowers? Well, I think calling it the largest climate bill ever passed is, you know, there's not a very high bar for that. So. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's disappointing and not unexpected. I mean, this is a far cry from the two to three trillion dollar bill they were discussing, you know, in Build Back Better. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to see that you have kind of these organizations that are aligned with the Democratic Party, of course, out there calling this, you know, the biggest climate bill and how great this is going to be for clean energy, things like that. But then you have the frontline groups, you know, saying, look, this is not helping us because they put a poison pill in there. If they're going to invest in renewable energy, then they have to allow drilling on a huge amount of federal land. And that means our communities are going to continue to be poisoned, you know, and polluted and will be sickened. So, and I don't think that we have um, any real evidence that, the amount of oil and gas drilling will be offset by any kind of emissions cut. So really, this is, you know, it's, it's so much of what we typically see coming out of Congress. It's really in the face of the reality of the climate crisis. This is really not enough. It's a far cry. And, you know, Margaret, here's the reality, too. You know, last year they passed the $250 billion countering China Technology Act 13 months ago. 
This month, they're in the process of passing a $250 billion CHIPS Countering China Technology Act. I once had an instructor that said, how do you spell commitment? Mm M-O-N-E-Y. They're putting a half a trillion dollars into just countering China, so-called. That's going to be given directly to corporations for the most part so they can ostensibly do technology. Of course, they're going to buy their stock back. So we don't see that kind of money and intention put into the issue of climate change, Margaret. Yeah, it almost seems like Congress is serving the interests of the wealthy class and class and not the people. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is it's, it's just it's so reminiscent of every kind of major crisis we have and, and what Congress does. And it's always a few crumbs to the people, but overwhelmingly going to uh, subsidize, bail out, you know, uh, raise the profits for the industries that are causing the problems. And and that's what this is. And I think it's disappointing, but it's typical, you know, that, that instead of saying, no, we have a real crisis, the climate crisis is here. Uh, we have to do something radically, you know, quick, quickly and radically to address it. And now this is just, you know, like with the healthcare legislation 12 years ago, now Congress can say, oh, look what we did. We did something and, and this will be off the radar. It'll be off the table, you know, for the next decade. So uh, it's really devastating to me. And to your point, somehow Republicans forced the removal of the proposal that would have capped insulin prices at $35 for private users. They did cap out-of-pocket costs for some insulin users, I think, on the Medicare side, but they didn't touch the private insurer side. They empowered Medicare to negotiate drug prices, but weren't able to negotiate drug prices across the board. And there's nothing to stop the drug companies from moving those costs to other places. So in many instances, it's a Ponzi scheme or it's a really, really, really nice sleight of hand trick. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people need to understand that, you know, while they're out there saying how great it is that now Medicare can negotiate drug prices, this is not until 2026. And it's only for about 10 drugs, um, you know, that have been on the market for a while. So um, this is very limited. And also the fact that there's so much time between now and when it takes effect means anything can happen. You know that the pharmaceutical industry is going to be in there doing whatever they can to make sure that they can protect their profits. As you said, if, if they are forced to make any cuts, they're going to they're going to make it up elsewhere. Dr. Flowers, for you to say it's a limited number of drugs that have already been on the market. What that says to me is that a lot of those drugs, the patents were due to expire or they were due to shift over to generic categories anyway. So they were basically negotiating the sleeves off their vest. You know, I haven't looked at it from that standpoint. I think that's really interesting. And it, and there's, you know, I would definitely think that that could be the case, you know, knowing how things work. You know, Margaret, in this Common Green article, I see something. Senate barely approves scaled back legislation on climate taxes and health care. You can find that at commondreens.org. But in there, they fall into this. Shame on ex-Senator Cinema, who had to be dragged kicking and screaming across the finish line. Margaret, 
I don't buy into mansion cinema or the designated Republicans that, oh, we can't get anything done. We don't have any Republicans that stop us now. So we'll have to designate a couple of Democrats. Cinema and mansion are the designated Republicans. It seems like a fraud. The president has a lot of power. He could put the heat on them and force them to do it. I just feel like we're being played with the mansion cinema game. Your thoughts, Margaret? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you've been around D.C. long enough to know how these things work. And, I mean, you know, the Democrats always have to have somebody to blame. But you're exactly right. When they want something, they can get it. I remember very clearly when we were trying to stop Congress from passing fast track uh, so that they could pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Obama's huge trade agreement. And we were winning. We They actually lost the vote on fast track. And then they came back the next week and tacked it onto a pension bill. And we had to clear out of Capitol Hill because, you know, the Capitol area, because Obama came personally to Congress and went in there and started wringing arms with the Democrats, telling them they better pass this. So, I mean, they when they want to, they can. They, they can get the votes. That's always an excuse. But they always have to have their fall people, right? So they can say, oh, we really wanted to address the climate crisis. Yes, we really think medicine costs should be lowered. But it's all a charade. And we know that. Switching gears a bit, after Kansas win, abortion rights advocates call ballot measures the next frontier. Now, with what transpired in Kansas, there are many who are saying that the dynamic for the midterms has shifted Mm. and that now, particularly they're saying suburban, middle-class white women who may have voted on the Republican side may now shift back to the Democratic side. And now all of a sudden what was perceived to be or projected to be a huge, huge loss for Biden in the midterms may now not be as catastrophic. Do you see the abortion issue being that dynamic in the midterms? Well, I think that's what the Democrats are counting on. I'm not sure that that's actually going to be the the reality. I think people are aware that the Democrats could have done something way before this Supreme Court decision to codify into law that, you know, abortions were uh, covered at the federal level so that we could avoid all of this. Um, but they they failed to do that. And, and, you know, people are kind of saying, oh, look, they didn't do that. Now they're trying to raise money from me to elect them on this promise that they didn't deliver on previously. So I'm not sure that that we'll see that. Maybe it'll have some effect. I don't think it'll be a huge effect. You're saying they failed to do it, and I'm not going to say that this was what you meant by this, but I want to say that that to many infers that they tried but failed. What I have found is they found this issue to be more valuable for them politically unsettled, which is why they chose not to do anything, because from a campaign and a politics perspective, having this up in the air and being able to use it to rally the troops was more valuable to them politically than having the issue settled. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's in a way what I was trying to say, but you said it much more eloquently. Margaret, I think all you have to do is look at this. 
for the last couple months or month or so, it was January 6th. And it was pretty clear that the January 6th thing was a political tool. You know what I mean? And here's what's clear. Oh, everything's got to happen. Oh, they're really going to get Trump this time. Guaranteed. The walls are closing in. He shall surely be done in this time, right? January 6th, 24-7. And the hearings ended and January 6th has disappeared because it was a political move to try to hope for anything they could. Now they're going to go for abortion. They're going to pass this thing. They just seem like they're desperate because they have not kept their word based on the promises. I'll put it like this. It was clear that Biden knew what the people wanted because he promised a bunch of things that the people wanted. He just hasn't come through with any of them. And all this to me just reeks of desperation, Margaret. Well, that's always how the Democrats get elected, right? I mean, it <laughs> didn't start with Biden. That they make, they know what their base wants. They've got the polling. They just refuse to do it. But they'll, you know, use this rhetoric during the campaigns to make it sound like that's what they're doing. And then they come up with these excuses, you know, like Mansion and Cinema, that they're the perfect fall people for this. It's just, uh, it's why, you know, in my mind, and I think the the article that you pointed out in Common Dreams on, you know, what's happening in Kansas with the ballot initiative to try to protect the right to abortion. You know, I think if folks are really interested right now in trying to win changes that'll have a material impact on their life or protect them from losing their rights even further, I would say if you're going to pour your efforts into politics where you can, because there's not not every state allows you to do ballot ballot initiatives. That's the way to go. I'd do that over trying to elect more Democrats. I think that would be a more effective measure, you know, use of your time. And to your point, there's another common dreams piece. Sanders says Senate bill nowhere near enough. He's the chair of the budget committee. He offered amendments that would have removed oil and gas handouts from the reconciliation bill, added dental, hearing, and vision care to Medicare, established a civilian conservation corps, strengthened the measures, drug pricing provisions, and revived the expanded child tax credit. To Garland's point, a number of things that Joe Biden ran on that they now ran from and Bernie Sanders trying to get them in and Democrats wouldn't vote for him. So to your point, it seems now to play your politics local instead of just focusing on the partisanship and trying to get more Democrats elected. Right. And all of these are very popular. They would make a material interest, you know, a difference in people's lives. And how many votes did his amendments get? One. Uh, one. His. <laughs> yeah. You know. So what work did he do uh, to try to corral the rest of the Democrats to, to support it? I mean, and for me, it was all like just educational, raising the, the fact that, you know, that people want this and they're not being given that. It, unfor- you know, sadly. Margaret, I think they have a good plan. The forward party for both Republicans <laughs> and Democrats. This could be totally different, Margaret. Aren't you excited? One yeah, minute. Margaret, we could all move forward. See, where have I heard that before? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think that, you know, at this point, uh, uh, local organizing, any type of direct democracy is going to be the best way that people can can try to protect the erosion of their rights and the fact that, you know, we're living in a failed or failing state, um, sadly. Margaret Flowers, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to Middle East Eye, Israel's assault on Gaza is an extension of its bloody war on Jenin. Instead of a large-scale invasion of Jenin refugee camp, it seems Israel decided to attack Gaza, where Palestinian resistance factions maintain a much stronger presence. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So a Middle East Eye reports the Israeli war against Palestinian resistance movements, including the Islamic Jihad in Gaza, didn't start a few days ago. It's been ongoing for months in Jenin. Jenin is now known to be essentially outside the security control of the Palestinian Authority, while Israel seems to have shifted its strategy from large-scale military operations to targeted killings of political activists. Your thoughts, Laith Marouf. I mean, uh, this three-day war that we just saw in Gaza definitely was triggered by uh, the Zionists who were, as you mentioned, attacking uh, Jenin refugee camp and Nablus and other towns that are uh, mobilizing to create resistance uh, cells. Specifically, the, uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad has been um, building these cells in the West Bank uh, as a way to extend the resistance uh, since the Palestinian Authority uh, is collaborating with the uh, Israelis. And um, originally, uh, you know, two days before this war in Gaza started, the Israelis uh, abducted Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad leader Bassam Saadi from Jenin, uh, they beat him up really horribly in his house and then dragged him out. And that is when uh, Islamic Jihad uh, announced that if he is not released, along with uh, prisoner of war Khalil Awauda, who was on hunger strike for 150 somewhat days and in, on his deathbed, if they are both not released, that uh, uh, Islamic Jihad will attack the Zionists. And um, what happened is... You know, uh, the Zionists, instead of actually releasing uh, these prisoners, uh, decided to attack Gaza uh, unprovoked without any actually attack coming from Gaza. And uh, this battle lasted three days, less than three days, uh, 50 somewhat hours. And at the end of it, uh, the Egyptians uh, were dragged in by the Israelis to negotiate a ceasefire. Uh, since the resistance in Gaza was able to hit Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and uh, much of the settlements and colonies around the Gaza Strip were all emptied of their colonists because of the intensity of rockets. There was over 1,300 rockets fired by the Islamic Jihad in, uh, in, the, in that 50-hour period. And the ceasefire came to, into effect where the Zionists supposedly agreed to the actual initial uh, demands of Palestinian uh, Jihad, uh, uh, which is the release of those two prisoners. And now we hear uh, from the Egyptians that the Israelis are reneging. Uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad said that they will be uh, reactivating the battle if they are not released by the end of the day. 
Laith, two things that I want to ask you. You know, there's elections and things. There's instability going on in Israel. How much of this is about internal politics? And also, if you could talk about the reaction of Hezbollah, Syria, Ansar Allah, and uh, Yemen, you know, the axis of resistance, what kind of reaction we've seen from them and what we can expect? Well, of course, uh, partially this has to do with the elections in Israel. Anytime there's an election in Israel, the competitors uh, in this election uh, try to vie uh, to show the public uh, in the Zionist colony that they are more bloody, that they are more uh, thirsty for Palestinian blood. And in this situation, we know the elections are going to happen in the next few weeks in, in the Zionist colony. And, and clearly now uh, the, the prime minister, sitting prime minister, is, uh, has a credit uh, on, on his hand for all the Zionists to choose from because his, his competitor is going to be Netanyahu, that's for sure. In terms of the axis of resistance, uh, you know, this war started coincidentally when the uh, Secretary General of, of Islamic Jihad was in Tehran and therefore, of course, the whole axis of resistance was on top of this, uh, we saw the multiple press conferences given by Islam Jihad from Tehran. We heard, of course, the statements of uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, who uh, you know, indicated uh, the support uh, of Hezbollah and their readiness to come to the aid of the Palestinians if they are requested to do so. Uh, that happened also in Yemen. The spokesperson for the Yemeni Armed Forces announced that uh, all the armed forces uh, in Yemen are ready to uh, bring aid, military aid, basically, come into the battle if their command uh, orders them to do so after the Palestinians ask them for their help. And for the first time, we heard the Syrian government also uh, make a call directly with the Secretary General of Islamic Jihad and offer the same. So, uh, and of course, the resistance in Iraq did that too. So we have a clear, you know, um, by chance that uh, because of Islamic Jihad's Secretary General being in Iran, that things were even more organized uh, than last time. And as we see, you know, the last war, yes, last year in Gaza lasted 11 days before the Israelis begged for a ceasefire. Um, and now they were fighting only one Palestinian group, one of the smallest, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and they couldn't last three days without asking for a ceasefire. Where is Hamas in all of this? This is an interesting question because Hamas clearly uh, did not join the battle. And uh, the Egyptian negotiators were saying that Hamas was going to join the battle uh, if the ceasefire didn't come into effect last night. So, you know, probably that pushed the Israelis to rush into a ceasefire, uh, fearing that uh, if, if, if Islamic Jihad can fire 1,300 missiles in 50 hours, uh, what would uh, Hamas be firing, you know, in, in this battle? And, uh, you know, some of the public in Palestine were a little bit irked that uh, Hamas didn't immediately join the battle. But I think it was a, it was a smart move because, you know, all of this is in, in stages. Uh, we know the resistance in Lebanon has promised to attack the 
uh, gas installations of the Zionist colony uh, in the next week or two if uh, Lebanon is not allowed to extract its own gas and if the looting of the disputed uh, fields continues. So, you know, ultimately, we have a bigger battle coming on our uh, on, on the horizon, and it's guaranteed because the Zionists are not, uh, you know, smart enough to, um, you know, and, and, and they're too arrogant to give Lebanon its rights. Uh, so, you know, Hamas most probably was trying to hold back to in any uh, uh, fight right now with the Zionists uh, because it wants to keep a stockpile for that bigger fight that's coming on the horizon. Turkey and Russia, interesting, a lot of things going on there. But I do know, I have read recently that Turkey has said they have called, and they are a NATO member, they've called for U.S. troops to get out of Syria. We see now that Russia has launched some airstrikes against U.S. backed fighters in Syria, against some of the jihadis in the area near the U.S. bases. What do you think is happening with this? Erdogan met with Putin in Sochi, a lot going on here. Put it all together. Tell me what you think about it, Leif Marouf. Yeah, I mean, this is the second uh, meeting between Erdogan and Putin in less than uh, a week or so, because they met before that in Iran, um, you know, a trilateral meeting with the president of Iran. So this tells you that there is clearly a movement on that file. Uh, also, Turkey just agreed to partially pay for all the uh, purchases from Russia in the ruble and uh, the Turkish lira, uh, therefore clearly joining the uh, ditching the dollar camp. Um, and, uh, you know, this this attack by the Russian Air Force on the uh, Wahhabi Contras that are housed in the Tenef, uh American uh, occupation base on the corner between Iraq, Jordan and Syria, that was an indication that, you know, the, the Russians are not going to tolerate this American occupation for much longer. Clearly, the Syrian government is, is itching to liberate its land. And if Turkey manages to actually uh, at least become neutral in between the, uh, you know, the eastern countries and the western countries, uh, you know, even, even even if it doesn't withdraw from NATO, but at least starts to become neutral in the battle in Syria. If if Turkey gets to be neutral in this fight, uh, this means that Syria uh, will have one less enemy to deal with on its own territory. It's reported that, again, Russia targeted the Liwa Shahada group and that the group is based in the Al-Tanif zone. What does it mean? In the context of what's going on in Ukraine, are there any parallels to draw between what's going on in Ukraine and Russia striking this group in the Altanov zone with the group being backed by the United States? There's many parallels of what's happening in Syria and uh, Ukraine. One of them is, of course, the oil, gas and wheat uh, in, in both uh, situations. These are crucial commodities for the global market. In the situation in Syria, the United States is looting all of those resources and then claiming that the world is having shortages uh, of wheat and, and gas and oil of course, while looting, as, as I said, the, the resources of Syria. Um, clearly, the Americans continue to supply the Ukrainian uh, military and uh, its Nazi 
militias, as well as in Syria, uh, the Wahhabi Contras, the Luwa'is Shuhada that you just mentioned, are all armed by the Americans and trained by the CIA. So yeah, it's a multiple, uh, you know, war front uh, confrontation between the powers. Uh, in this, you know, situation of Syria, we see after, you know, 10 years of this war on Syria, uh, Syria is emerging victorious. It is still on a shaky grounds because it doesn't, can't access its main resources that are under American occupation. But it's definitely healthier than Ukraine is currently or will be in the end of uh, that war. We look at the, the losses of the Ukrainian military just in these last few months since this the operation, uh, Russian operation began. They are already almost, uh, you know, half of the Syrian military losses that over the 10 years. So that tells you how fast the Ukrainian military is collapsing in comparison to the Syrian military that uh, suffered a lot, but withstood a lot too. Yes, I think you're right. And I think we're seeing the Gulf states and all the states in the area realizing the weakness of the U.S., realizing that the U.S. is on its way out. And I think you're going to see more rapprochement between countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran and see some of the interfighting amongst various Islamic countries start to drop. Uh, 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to see the statements that came out from uh, some of the Emirati officials against the uh, Israelis just uh, yesterday. I mean, this is unexpected. This is was a country that uh, led the normalization with the Zionist colony. And we, we heard yesterday multiple emirs and the uh, former police chief of uh, the United Arab Emirates all condemning uh, and saying that Israel only wants to kill children. So we can see already the ground shaking and people need to be uh, across the globe ready for the collapse of American hegemony. Leif Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Millions of Germans won't be able to pay for heating. Income thresholds need to be changed so more people qualify for housing benefits, according to the German Tenants Union. This sounds like a big problem, and it's self-inflicted for insight. Let's turn to our next guest. He's an independent investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, the Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, sir, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. So it's reported at least a third of Germans on low incomes may not be able to pay increasingly high energy bills. This is according to the German Tenants Association, urging the government to make changes to housing programs. Their housing chief told Der Spiegel, we're talking about millions here. Daniel Lazar, this to me is incredibly telling when you start to have some understanding 
of how robust of a retirement program Germany has, the social services. They're much more robust than we are. And this, to me, is incredibly telling, Dan Lazar. I, I totally agree. I mean, the, uh, these, these sanctions the US applied, that the U.S. and its allies, including Germany, applied to Russia are just backfiring roundly. Uh, but, the, but the U.S. policy has never made sense. I mean, Russia opened up the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline in 2010, and it, it pumped oodles and oodles of low-priced natural gas to Germany without any problems whatsoever. The Russians they were just interested in a good business deal. They followed through on, their, on, their, on, their, on their, their part of the bargain, and everything went along swimmingly. When Russia then tried to open up Nord Stream 2 a few months ago, the U.S. did its best to sabotage it, told, somehow advanced the thesis, the argument that more gas would make Germany cheaper, uh, weaker rather than stronger, and then persuaded Germany to shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So since then, Nord Stream 1 is 80% offline due to technical problems. Uh, Nord Stream 2 is 100% offline due to political problems, uh, and there's nothing Germany can do. It's on a starvation diet. Gerhard Schroeder, the former chancellor who helped build Nord Stream 2, says the solution is easy. Just open Nord Stream 2, and Germany will have all the gas it needs. But Germany has said no due to intense U.S. pressure. So, yeah. You are absolutely 100% correct that this, this wound is self-inflicted. You know, Dan, and what we see here is continually information war versus reality. You know, we got all day long, all day, every day, the Ukrainians are standing up and they're defeating the Russians, which sounds good until you realize that this is actually the Russian army. And now they're kind of pretty much flattening the Ukrainians with artillery, as could have easily been predicted. And now it's all we got to do is, you know, just cut our baths back to once a week. Remind me not to visit Europe anytime soon. Cut our baths back to once every week or so and everything will be fine, which is going to kind of work until it gets cold. And I got a bad feeling that the people of Europe, from what I've seen of people's ability, you know, to riot and kind of freak out in Europe, are going to tear that continent to pieces. I mean, I feel like there's going to be violence they're not going to just freeze to death without making sure that the whole country gets torn apart. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, in and, and, and England, Boris Johnson has fallen. Uh, in France, uh, Emmanuel Macron has been gravely weakened by, by parliamentary elections that, that did not go his way. In Italy, Mario Draghi uh, has fallen, a centrist politician, and it looks like a far-right coalition led by neo-fascists will prevail. Uh, Bulgaria is in political turmoil, and other countries are hanging on, on the edge as well. So, so, and all this is due in one way or another to, to economic turmoil unleashed or at least or ag aggravated and exaggerated by the uh, the war in the Ukraine, so so all these policies are really hurting the West more than they're hurting Russia, and um, they're causing huge political upset. So that the voters are yes, the voters are going to punish the the politicians, the parties that are responsible 
for these policies. And Express UK has a piece. What happens if you don't pay your energy bills? 91,000 pledged to stop paying in October. Energy bills are set to rise over 3,200 pounds in October, and nearly 100,000 people have signed up to Don't Pay UK Movement. So to Garland's point, these are the types of indicators that say that when you start having people sign petitions like this, this is showing that this can expand even beyond your energy issue. Yes. And, and Rishi Sunak, the chancellor of the Exchequer in, uh, in Britain, who is a, was and actually still is a leading candidate for prime minister to replace uh, Boris Johnson, uh, his, his wife uh, was caught in a 25 million pound tax dodge. Now, so, so you have pensioners who, are, who can barely hold on, hold on, whose budgets are being strained to the breaking point by the increase in, in, uh, in energy prices. And then you've got a, a small number of the super rich who are actually running the country who are still making out like bandits. So it's a, it's a completely outrageous situation that is guaranteed to make the average person's blood boil. You know, Dan, I'll go back to something that you said very early in the conflict. We were having this discussion and we all kind of agreed, you know, this is kind of Bambi versus Godzilla. Ukraine ain't winning this. There's no way that's happening. And if I remember correctly, you said at some point the people are going to say, how did we get into this? You know, was this worth it? What was this all for? And here's what's going to make it so bad. Within the next several weeks to a month at the most, Eastern Ukraine's going to fall, which means this thing's going to kind of be over. I mean, they can pretend it isn't. But at some point before winter, it's going to be clear and obvious that they did all of this. They cost the people disastrous results and lost everything. And that's when it's really going to get ugly. Dan. Well, I, I agree. The only thing is that my only difference is that the as the U.S. and its allies are allies are pouring in so many so much material at this point that um, that the effects are not quite clear. So I don't want to write the Ukrainians off yet because it's, it's still possible the battle could drag on inclusively for a long time to go. Um, but nonetheless, the, 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 the basic outline will remain unchanged. The economic policies will hurt the average person severely and for reasons that he really can't understand. Uh, and, and, and it's quite clear that, the, that NATO provoked this, this war by, its, by expanding relentlessly to the east and ignoring Russia's entirely, security, entirely justified security concerns. This is not to, to justify the, the Russian response, but it is to put it in context. Um, and, and there's no reason that NATO had to do that. NATO made things worse rather than better. And... And the and the average person will eventually realize that, and eventually realize that national policy has been has been hijacked by a bunch of incompetence and cow towers to the uh, to the United States, and that that has to change. And when that has to change, well, we will see some seismic shifts in European politics. RT has a piece: Japan won't quit Russian energy project. Tokyo says. Shakalin 1 is too valuable to abandon.
Japan will not be leaving the Sakhalin 1 oil and gas project in Russia's Far East because of its significance to the country's energy supply. So this is another U.S. ally saying, nah, I feel you, U.S., but my energy needs are more important than your political agenda. Yeah, so there's another U.S. ally finally wising up. You know, and saying and saying it is you know, but saying enough with reckless U.S. policies. And of course, Japan is in the line of fire uh, due to the showdown with China that the U.S. is also blundering into over Taiwan. And and that can't make Japan very happy. I mean, Japan doesn't want that. It doesn't need that. It's not looking for a fight with China of all people. I mean, it, it's already been there, done that and paid a horrendous price, uh, and it doesn't want to go there again. So, you know, so, so at some point, Japan has got to apply the brakes just out of pure na- enlightened national self-interest. On that note, I would ask you, it appears that the Asian dynamic has changed in a way from the Pelosi visit in that the countries in that area, they're looking at the potential of what could have happened there. They're looking at Ukraine and the disaster that is in the EU. It seems to me that the Asian countries, you see what happened in South Korea, are pretty much recoiling in horror and starting to realize these people are a bunch of arsonists and they're gonna set our house on fire. Even our allies are backing away in Asia. Your thoughts? Yeah, no one wants to be another Ukraine. I mean, Taiwan doesn't wanna be another Ukraine. South Korea doesn't want to be another, another Ukraine. I mean, so the last thing they want to do is get embroiled in a devastating war for no good reason. And, but yet that's exactly what U.S. policy seems, seems to be working toward. Uh, and, and the, you know, America is far away. You know, someone described it as, a, you know, as, a, as an island state bordered by fishes to the east and west, west, and insignificant powers to the north and south. You know, it has nothing to worry about. It can make war. It can, it can wage proxy war as much as it wants in the Ukraine or the Taiwan Strait. Um, but, you know, but for, for countries like Japan or Taiwan or, you know, or, or uh, similar, you know, Hungary and Europe, now, the danger of being dragged into these conflicts is huge. And it's something they want to avoid at all costs, yet they have been very hesitant to stand up to the U.S. so far. And to your point, Europe to face economic slump due to situation in Ukraine, according to the Finnish president. Europe will face an economic slump. Finnish President Sali Ninistro said in an interview, people in Finland and other EU countries will have to put up with the fact that the economy will not be growing year after year. Well, you know, for the economy, but people have gotten used to the economy growing year after year. That's what they had come to expect. That's what progress means. So progress is coming to a, to a crash. And the Ukraine didn't deserve this either. Correct. I mean, they didn't deserve to have, have these crazed right-wing neo-Nazi nationalists in control pursuing a collision course with Russia. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Governors keep busing migrants to Washington, a novel Republican-led effort to protest the Biden administration's handling of record-setting migration across the U.S.-Mexico border has resulted in thousands of asylum seekers being bused to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., as well as to New York City, alarming aid groups and immigrant rights advocates. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guests. First, we're joined by the co-founder and executive director of Alianza Americas, Oscar Chacon. Oscar, as always, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Thank you for inviting me. We're also joined by a San Antonio-based specialist in immigration law as certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. He currently works on various family-based and employment-based immigration law cases, as well as deportation cases. Carlos Castaneda. Carlos, as always, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here. So, Carlos, let me start with you from the legal perspective. Governor Greg Abbott launched this program in April, chartering buses to send recently arrived migrants from the uh, southern border in Texas to Washington, D.C., and now he's sending them to New York City. And he's basically seeming to harp on the fact that, okay, you all claim to be asylum cities. Well, grant asylum. I mean, that seems to be the card he's playing. Carlos, your thoughts? Indeed. From a legal point of view, let's remember two main things. First of all, It is the federal government and only the federal government that has any authority over the enforcement of immigration laws. Second, while the state of Texas, through the governor's office, can move people to another state, it has to be voluntarily, that is, with the consent of the individuals being moved. Otherwise, we get into that not-so-great line of kidnapping. So in this case... The individuals brought to New York City and the ones previously brought to Washington, D.C., had to have given some sort of consent to be transferred from the custody of the state of Texas to one of these other areas. And one concern that I actually have regarding this is that individuals who are unfamiliar with the process and who don't have the same kinds of resources, either legal resources or assistance from nonprofit organizations, many of which have made the extra effort to be on standby to receive these migrants when they are bused to their final locations. Many individuals may not appreciate their need to update the immigration courts and ICE officials of their new address if they are indeed changing their location and going to a location other than the one that they initially informed immigration authorities that they will be going to. Let me ask you to quickly clarify something. So the individuals that are being bused, they've already come through some sort of process because one of the things that I was trying to figure out was, are they just rounding these people up as they cross the border, putting them on buses and sending them elsewhere? Or have they at least gone through some sort of process and have been put into the system? I can't speak as to the individual cases because I just don't know. But my suspicion, Wilma, is this. Many individuals, and we can thank the so-called Operation Lone Star that was put into effect last year, many of these individuals were first brought into the custody of the state of Texas and put in a county jail 
four misdemeanor trespass charges or something along those lines, specifically in order to prevent them from being transferred into the custody of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And so some of these individuals may be being released from a county jail and then being transported to another state without the direct involvement of immigration authorities. However, without knowing much about their specific individual cases, I can't speak as to which case we have. But it could also be that someone within the jurisdiction of the state of Texas or someone not within the jurisdiction of the state of Texas or custody of the state of Texas, I should say, who has consented to the free bus ride to New York City is among those being transported. However, I just can't speak as to each individual case. Let me ask something from a little bit of a different angle, and I'll start with you, Oscar. You know, uh, notwithstanding the legal issues, and, you know, again, my question would be, even if they said yes, was it under duress? Was there a level of duress? What was the alternative that caused them to say yes, which I think would have to be taken into account? But let me ask you this. Is it possible that they're better off? Is it possible that the way they'd be treated in Texas, the resources that may be made available to them as opposed to where they're being sent, that they may be in a position where they'd say, yeah, we're being moved all across, but the way they're gonna treat us here isn't so great, and we'll go to a place that has more resources and are more welcoming. What do you think about that? We'll start with you, Oscar. Well, first of all, let me just say that let's not lose track of the fact that in the end, this is part of a larger political electoral strategy that Republican leaders in the U.S. chose long ago that they would use uh, precisely to enhance their chances to become elected next November. And this particular operation has to be understood from that perspective, the perspective of inflaming the feelings in the country regarding people entering the U.S. without authorization and then being caught by the immigration authorities and then be released because they are all caring, you know, for all I know, and I've been especially familiar with the operation uh, of people arriving into Washington, D.C., they all come in with something called, you know, order to show cause to basically show up, you know, for an immigration hearing. And Carlos is correct that unless they are properly supported, advised by legal representatives, they may not update their files and then they may miss you know, their upcoming uh, hearing precisely to um, make merits uh, about why they are here. But on the other hand, just to respond to your question, people are going to D.C. and now to New York because that brings them closer to where they wanted to be anyways. The experience I've become particularly familiar with in D.C., a lot of the people, believe it or not, were not even intending to get out of Texas. They were intending to get out of the border area. Uh, Some of the people that are arriving in Washington, D.C., are literally being returned to Texas, except that they weren't going to Texas, the border. They were going someplace else in Texas. And once you board a bus... There are no stops. You know, these are non-stop bus rides all the way to whichever city they're going to, either Washington, D.C. or New York City. But in the end, what people are really hoping to be able to do is to come to a city where they know somebody, where they have a relative that promised them support for their integration once they are in the U.S. Oscar, let me stay with you. And from the 
providing of resources perspective, since that's what you all do, the grassroots providing of resources. How difficult is it for Washington, D.C.? How difficult is it for New York City to receive this influx of individuals and provide them with resources? And what kind of resources are being provided? Well, actually, I can tell you again, the New York City operation is brand new. It's just literally beginning. Washington, D.C., on the other hand, has been dealing with this for weeks. People were not prepared in Washington, D.C. for the arrival of these buses. The city was not prepared. The federal government was not prepared either. So several nonprofit organizations, uh, including one that I happen to know very well, uh, the Central American Resource Center, have been deeply uh, diverted, basically, to attend this crisis, but the best they can do is to provide short-term remedy, literally provide a space where people can, you know, get a shower, can get a meal, but the next day they are trying to move on to wherever it is that they want to ultimately go. So the efforts have been great because, you know, basically they didn't plan for this and they are having to cope with this reality. They are having to fundraise to be able to have enough resources to provide, for example, for bus rides and in some instances airline tickets for people to go to where they ultimately wanted to go. But right now the situation is reaching a level where the, the, the numbers of people arriving are so many and the resources are so insufficient that they are clearly going into a crisis situation because, again, there is simply no preparation that was adequate for the numbers of people that are arriving. Let me just quickly say, Garland, that Carlos just received a call from a client in jail, so he had to drop. Go ahead, Garland. Oscar, so let me ask you this. I was just about to ask you about the numbers, you know, and I tell you why I ask, because let's be honest, whenever it's politically convenient, the conservatives in the U.S. say, oh, my gosh, there's more people at the border. There's a border crisis. And we know if there was one person at the border just prior to the midterms, we know they'd say there was a border crisis. So if you can talk about what is going on now, what do the numbers look like? Do you consider it a border crisis? And if so, what's driving those numbers? Well, This whole issue has been turned into a crisis mainly because of the insistence of white supremacists, you know, deeply xenophobic political forces in the country that have sadly persuaded the nation, have persuaded public opinion, have persuaded politicians that immigrants and immigration are something bad for the country, when in reality, The evidence accumulated over decades shows clearly that these immigrants have been actually a blessing for the country. Take the fact that we have so many job openings in so many different cities throughout the U.S., jobs that nobody seems to be able to fill. We should be welcoming people that are wanting to come, taking all sorts of sacrifices, and actually become part of the American dream. But Again, if we were debating and handling these issues from this perspective, there would be no crisis. It is politically convenient for politicians, particularly Republicans, to make this into a crisis because they firmly believe that they can benefit from it coming the next election in November. And so how do you see this being resolved? Are more buses coming? And what's Greg Abbott's end game here? Just to keep sending buses? Go ahead. (laughs) No, the end game is clearly 
enhancing the chance of Republican politicians above his own case uh, to be successful in the coming November. But in the end, what they are hoping to be able to do is to continue to poison the debate on immigrants and immigration, even in cities like Washington, D.C., New York City, um, by keep sending buses. I mean, for all I know, they are intending to keep buses coming. They are intending to keep having people reach uh, into these places. And let's face it, in the end, the ultimate culprit here continues to be the Congress, because the Congress has systematically felt to actually modernize our immigration policies so that something like what has been going on recently doesn't really need to be happening if we have much smarter, much better immigration policies that recognize the fundamental truth that immigrants and immigration have been extremely beneficial, especially for the United States of America. Well, you know, I hear about people being grabbed and put into cages. So are these people that would normally be held in captivity? Well, these are people that enter the U.S. through documents that require them to show up, you know, for a court interview. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they are free, is when Texas is telling them, do you want to go to Washington? Do you want to go to New York? And this goes back to Carlos' point. They're basically saying, yes, I want to go. And that's the moment in which they board them in the buses and take them out. I see. If these people weren't being taken in these buses, they would probably be having to find other ways to get to their ultimate desired destination, which may not necessarily be Washington, D.C. or New York. And really quickly, 30 seconds. Could this backfire on the Republicans the way that the abortion debate now seems to be flipping on them at the state level? Well, sadly, I think that we have to cope with the fact that for more than 30, 40 years, they've been using the same message, saying that immigrants, I mean, I find that hard to go away in the short term. Oscar Chacon, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate Carlos Castaneda joining us as he did. He had a client call him and had to take the call. But thank you, Oscar. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez were sworn in as Colombia's new president and vice president. Yesterday, from Bolivar Square in Bogota, Gustavo Petro was sworn in for a period of 2022 to 2026. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He hosts Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington. He's a Pan-Africanist and internationalist organizer and a member of Black Alliance for Peace, Netfa Freeman. Netfa, as always, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. 
We know in situations like this, symbolism can be very, very telling and very, very important. And so as his first order after assuming the presidency, Gustavo Petro requested for the sword of liberator Simon Bolivar to be brought in hours after the outgoing president, Ivan Duque, had refused to allow it to be included in the ceremony. Does that send a signal to you? And if so, what signal does it send? <laughs> yeah, the signal is very symbolic gesture. And also it, it sends the signal that um, there, there's a reemergence of leftist sentiments in not just Colombia, but in all of Latin America. And they, they talk, you often hear about spoken about the pink tide, but we're actually seeing uh, something that actually become more darker <laughs> than the pink tide, I think. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that Gustavo Petro represents anything more than a pink tide, but I think if you look, look at all the countries and take the, what's happening in the consideration, the ge- geopolitical situation, that we are seeing something that's, that's much more firm and strong. At the same time that uh, Gustavo Petro called for, asked for the sword of Simon Bolivar, they also have been making moves to normalize the relations between Venezuela and Colombia, which a lot of us know that Colombia on the border of Venezuela has been used as a proxy by the United States to destabilize Venezuela. And so there, what the, the administration of Petro and uh, Marquez, uh, Francia Marquez represents, is something that's actually look that is actually going to de- or interfere challenge the agenda of of the United States, particularly what we would call the Monroe Doctrine. And I think they have to be, everyone knows, they have to be very careful. Colombia's history has been really, really uh, oppressive and fascist in nature when it comes to the right wing maintaining power. Thousands of people assassinated, uh, thousands of people disappeared, uh, right wing being able to hold the power uh, power in there for decades, decades on end, and doing so through those disappearances and those murders. And so, rightly so, um, Petro and, and, and Marquez have to be very uh, careful. That, or that, and I don't like to just reduce everything to individuals because we're really not – we're talking about more than individuals. We're talking about uh, an organized force. And I think it's uh, important to note an organized movement. And I think it's important to note that um, Colombia has one of the most organized, in spite of all the repression, organized and disciplined um, leftist movements in civil societies in the hemisphere. And so they really, uh, I think that the powers that be are really seeing a threat to their hegemony. And I think we had to, but we, I think we should also be encouraged that this, their election reflects that movement and that the integrity of that movement and the organization and the fortification of that movement. And so it's a very inspiring moment. And we, we're seeing similar things like in Peru and other places where there's a, a leftist ethos uh, and a resistance to, to what would be really the Monroe Doctrine in effect, the 21st century Monroe Doctrine. Now, talk about how important this is in the context of what's happening worldwide with U.S. and certainly European imperialism in that, you know, the U.S. is seeing, you know, of course, Russia, China, they're seeing things happening in Africa and the Middle East. But the area that they were always able to dominate, they were always able to apply the Monroe Doctrine. And we see particularly I would say Colombia more so than any other country because that's where they had their big base. That's where the CIA, that's where the military right. operated. That's where they 
they launched attacks. How important is this as far as from the perspective of global issues? Oh, this is this is huge. I mean, I'm glad you actually helped ask to broaden the, the purview uh, globally because it really issues imperialism, uh, particularly and led by the U.S. We're talking about the U.S. EU, we refer to it in Black Alliance for Peace, the U.S.-EU-NATO axis of domination, um, and that their imperialism is in a, in a crisis, you know, in a crisis moment right now where the peoples of the world and the emerging movements of the world, even what we consider neocolonial puppets, like in Africa, for example, are not accepting the being pushed around and accepting the, 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 uh, the influence or the, or the threats, I would call it, of U.S. imperialism. It's important to note the Colombia is the only Latin American country that is part of NATO. And so when we look at globally, where the U.S. is even – they're doing things that are seemingly – they're contradictory, but they're, but they're desperation. For example, the U.S. is getting ready to go, a whole bunch of people going to different places uh, in Africa, taking different trips to Africa. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, Thomas Greenfield is her name? Yes. The Thomas Greenfield, mm-hmm. the U.S. And, and, uh, and she's going to Africa and I think she's in Africa right now, Uganda, and Anthony Blinken's going to go there. Samantha Powers, they're all, in terms of Africa uh, in particular, but really this whole world thing is really concerned about they're in a competition mode when it comes to China and Russia. And so they're going there saying, at least declaring, that they have to change their uh, their disposition toward at least Africa. And I think in the world, this militarism, this military first strategy they want to re-examine that because it hasn't fared well. I mean, no one really likes to be pushed around. And they also see that the other uh, powers, economic powers, China and Russia, have done, has had their success based on an opposite situation. And so right now they can claim it. But what, like getting back to the essence of your question is that the U.S. and Western Europe, their approach is predicated on a legacy of colonialism. And so they really end a legacy, colonialism meaning and requiring the dominance of and the hegemony, the exploitation of different countries, their markets, their their resources, all of that. And the only way to dominate places is through force, because eventually if you, you can pretend to have some – you can pretend to have some, what do you call it, uh, bilateral and respective relations, but then if you really have truly that, you can't dominate by force. It really would mean the end of imperialism. So they, they're only trying to rebrand that. Uh, they can only rebrand that, otherwise they become something else. And so the you know, and then you can see this in Latin America, which has a much more mature. I would call it much more. Uh, I had to be careful. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that Latin America is like you know some kind of way mis- superior or something or, or better than Africa or anything like that. But in terms of how things, how history has unfolded, um, their their anti-imperialist movements have uh, things have happened differently for them. So the the leftist movement in Af- in uh, Latin America ha- has much more advantages. You have still have uh, countries like revolutionary countries like Cuba and, and Nicaragua and Venezuela and now Bolivia who they represent uh, a stronghold uh, and actually a representation of a left ethos there. And that actually that can even spread because now we have from Latin America to the east the, the reemergence or the strengthening of the non-aligned movement. They want to make everything about you know Russia and, and kind of Cold War, but the other nations, the former colonized nations, 
uh, remember the non-aligned movement, and they're doing what's best for them, and you know whatever. And if it means having relationships with Russia and China, that's it. But they know how to navigate things. They're they're able to look at things to see what's best for them. What is, um, yeah, what's best in the interest of them. And what we have to look at, what we want to happen in terms of movements that we deal with the class aspect of it. So in Africa, while they might not be, you have all these elites not wanting the same old relationship with the U.S. They still could do things. We still need the, uh, what have to be done uh, in the best interest of the working class and, and peasants and everything in Africa. So that still will be an issue regardless of which power is, uh, is exercising influence. And to follow up on Garland's point, it is believed that the hit squad that assassinated Moise in Haiti came out of Colombia. That's right. So we know the United States has been engaged in training hit squads. And to your point, and just elaborate a little more on your point about the regional impact, because when you look at who was in attendance at the ceremony, you had the Mexican foreign minister and also the wife of Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, King Philippe of Spain, the Chilean president was there, the president of Costa Rica, the president of Bolivia, Luis Arce, the president of Argentina. I mean, everybody came to the party. To me, that speaks volumes of there is a real turn in the tide in a real change in the direction. Right. And they would have had the president of Peru if the Congress hadn't blocked his uh, authorization to go and, and participate as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Garland. Nefa. So apparently there are opposition forces in Peru who are pushing, you know, the narrative of corruption against Pedro Castillo. I think that should be a reminder to all of us and to those who are working in the global south that, you know, the U.S. is not and the neo-colonial empire has not thrown in the towel. And even when, you know, Petro gets into power, they're still going to be trying to work their magic behind the scenes to either you know, take them down or at best, at worst, to, you know, cripple their ability to, to do change, particularly any revolutionary change. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with that. I think we can't expect uh, imperialism to throw in the towel any more than the left movement would throw in the towel. I think we don't need to, because these are the power dynamics of, you know, of the world of society. And a lot of it has to do with uh, a class relationship. So the right wing in Peru, which is actually, I mean, am I going too much to say notoriously uh, um very right. I mean, like fascist. <laughs> you know, um, we gotta get, get, but I mean, they're they're they bandy these things out around corruption, all that kind of stuff, because they, you know, it's, corruption is based on who the, who's defining the laws and whether you're laws and and also the information and what I, I'm not really familiar enough with with Peru to be able to. Uh, refute or or even cast any judgments on on the accusations but we know that uh, president castillo is decidedly a uh indigenous looking person at least phenotype and has some leftist leanings and so and this is something very quite new for for peru i mean this is another reflection of the of the pink tide emerging and these are people the people that are electing um and using electoral process to push back on something on forces that are decidedly uh militaristic and physical in their exercising of power um and then we have to we have to make sure though that that the 
a counterpart movement. It's not just about the states and who we can get inside of states. And I say we because I'm identifying with the poor and oppressed people around the world because the same thing actually applies to the settler colonial United States is that we also have to uh, create alternative systems in the midst of what actually exists. And we have to be able to build the capacity to defend the games and that we have to have something that holds also whoever's in power accountable and true in terms of the people-centered, uh, the people-centered interest. And that can only come from uh, movements and, and revolutionary movements and actors on, in the mass. So it's interesting that President Castillo was not allowed to leave the country, that the Peruvian Congress right. did not allow him to leave the country. I think that it was the first time in 30 years, I think, right. that, uh, yeah, that a president hasn't been allowed by the parliament to travel on an official mission. Also, it's interesting that Maduro wasn't at Petro's inauguration <laughs> because Duque would not allow Maduro into the country. We have just about 45 seconds could the fact that Castillo wasn't allowed to leave the country, could that show the hands of the United States and the power base for the United States? They might be trying to shift it from Colombia to Peru. Uh, I hadn't, uh, yeah, I guess that is one. I mean, I'd have to look at that more. It's definitely, okay. Uh, um, but that's not know, a that's not a crazy question to ask. No, hell, heck no, that's <laughs> not a crazy question. That it makes sense. I just hadn't thought about it. Um, and then we know what's up with Duque and, and Maduro and mm-hmm. that. You know, mm-hmm. Netpa Freeman, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 